This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise, gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things. But at least I knew they were there just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side by side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Shouldn't you be at work? When the seagulls follow the trawler, it's because they think sardines will be thrown into the sea. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. I'll have a low-fat pizza or something like that or a few biscuits and some milk on a Sunday. You can pair up if you like and you can fucking pick someone else to help you and you can bring your fucking dinner. Free kick on Ali and it's through to Timothy Arnold and he's gone and done it! Now, you know him better than anybody probably. Do you back him to score quickly, yes or no? Yes. Oh, oh it No! Hello and welcome to Quickly Kevin, Will He Score? It's Series 11, Episode 4. I'm Chris Scott. Joining me as always, Josh Whittacombe. Hello. And it's Return of the Mards. Michael Marden is back. Hello. How are we all? All good. Enjoying the series? So far, so good. So far, so good. It could all go wrong at any point, as Newcastle found in 1996. Um, Here's a a 90s deep cut memory that I just thought of then. Do you remember Mark Morrison who sang Return of the Mads? Yeah. Do you know uh, where he got done for community service? And yeah, yeah. I'm sure this is, do I remember this right? And he sent someone, he sent a lookalike to do it. No, that's correct. That is correct. <laughs> On Different that, times. I was going to read this as one of the emails, but uh, should we start before we even go into the post bag? Uh, unplanned, do I remember this right? Oh, yes, please. Do I remember this right? 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 Okay, this is from Dwayne Dugan. Look, I've Googled this many times over the years. I'm pretty sure it's a slow, lingering brain hemorrhage. But before I submit myself to analysis, I wanted to reach out and check. I remember reading, probably in Match magazine, that in the 90s, Michael Dubry, I think, was unable to make a cup game for Chelsea. Didn't want to let the team down, so got his brother to go in disguise, and he played a blinder. (laughs) (laughs) That's just not true. It's absolutely not true. He's put, this Maybe is, if it was this his was twin never brother. In a magazine, was it? Am I gonna, no, that's, if it's in a magazine, it's a joke. Yeah. Yeah. Unless it's, unless it's his twin brother who has a very high level of football competence, but somehow has never been signed for a team. It's got the same level of match, match fitness as a professional Premier League footballer. And what's the that's, disguise? Because the thing with Michael Dubry is... It, he had a shaved head and no facial hair. 
So his brother's either going to look like him or not. There's nothing he can, not Michael Dubry didn't famously have glasses and a moustache that allowed him to like, you know what I mean? Like, maybe if it had been Carlos Valderrama, you think, okay, you could do a chance up to look a bit more like you and no one's going to question it because you could do the big hair and stuff. But Dubry's the, st- the starting point He's he's not you're not able to transform into Dubry using yeah disguise Dubry in a, in a nineties football game of guess who Dubry's an absolute nightmare card to pull <laughs> yeah exactly but what he is is you know the iron filings game Dubry's the start before you put any iron filings on so <laughs> so you can't you can't disguise it I'm gonna throw that out here and now without even doing any research. That I can't believe that's true. Just I was just thinking, like in a quantum leap scenario, just imagine that the, his brother looked exactly the same as him and yeah. could play football just as well as him. If you turn like even just the things you'd have to go through on the day, like meeting people, having yeah. conversations, I don't think an outsider could even do that. It's, if, be, if you were as good as and looked exactly like <laughs> Michael Dupree. Do you think you... Well, why is this guy not a footballer as well? If he played so well for Chelsea, you'd think they'd go at the end. <laughs> Surprise, you got yourself a new player. <laughs> yeah, you got two Dubries at the back. <laughs> two Dubries. <laughs> the best centre-back pairing of all time, Dubry squared. <laughs> but, like, also, like, would his brother, having played so well, be be willing to slip back into the, um, into the shadows? Yeah. Anonymity. Yeah, you know, you know the Prestige. Uh, have you seen the Prestige? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, so, the plot. Oh God, let me get this right. But it involves two identical twins who never, no one ever knows as identical twins, and they're magicians and they use this to pull off incredible tricks. That's right, isn't it, Michael? Yeah. Well, maybe, exactly. maybe this is it. Maybe there are two, two Dubries. Maybe, maybe, maybe. Has anyone, you know what someone should do, a deep dive into uh, Michael Dubry's appearance record. Was there a period where he played 70 or 80 games in a row without missing a single minute? <laughs> People were like, his stamina and his injury record is absolutely insane. Oh, if you look back on Michael Dubry's career, and there's a nights where he's played two, two different games in two different parts of the country. <laughs> or is there a point when Michael Dubry's gone up for a corner and then the ball's broken down the other end and you can't believe that Michael Dubry's back in defence already? <laughs> Yeah, I, and now I remember Alan Shearer saying once, "God, it was like two different men were marking me. <laughs> I just couldn't, I just couldn't get an elbow in anywhere." Everywhere I, I, I think, turned with Michael Dubry. <laughs> like that scene at the end of the Matrix with Mister Smith. It's just fucking Dubries everywhere. <laughs> what do you think the most difficult bit to go through would be of your day if you're pretending to be? You've got the look and the skills. Is it talking to you? I think you could get away with talking to your teammates, couldn't you? Just say you're I very think, nervous for this one or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, would, maybe. Would it be knowing where to go and what to do? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, That's even what I like where <laughs> the changing rooms are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, he'd be wandering around Stamford Bridge, like that scene in um, Spinal Tap. They'd just be like, where the fuck is Dubry got? He's just yeah. downstairs in the cellar with the cleaners or something. And you wouldn't know, like, when... You wouldn't really know what the warm-up involved or when you came back into the dressing room or you'd have yeah. to be kind of checking everyone to see what you did. Pulling the manager for been a chat privy. before the game. Like, do yeah. I need has to he, bring my been... own studs? Yeah. <laughs> has he been there all week for like the training and the match prep? Does he know what system's being played? Does he know the names of all the team? His team. Has he got the same I... voice as well? 
Like, are you having to adapt your voice? I uh, think we can safely say this is a, this is not do I remember this right. I've remembered this wrong. Yeah, I've remembered this wrong. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's get on with the 90s o'clock news. Headquarters of ITN News at 10 with Chris Scull. Top story this week Lee Dixon denies climate change. Oh no. Uh, oh no. And Jan Mulby throws shade on Peter Shields. Top oh, no. story this week. I don't know if are we, I think this could be a new feature we might need to introduce. And, uh, you know, it's the kind of Latisse style do we need to cancel this 90s? He's such, a, 90s. Not, he's such a kind of. Of all uh, the people, I wouldn't want it to be Dixon. Well, I agree, but listen to this and, t- and tell me what you think. Hang on. So this is commentary from Manchester United versus Arsenal and uh, Lee Dixon on commentary. Listen to this. This is a question I think I asked last year that you might know the answer of. You might not. It's all about why don't goalkeepers wear caps anymore? It's the sun changed since the 70s. Well, first of all, I said occasionally you do still see one, but it, not as many as you used to, no, I agree. Every, all goalies used to wear caps when it was sunny. And now we've got global warming, allegedly. And maybe we've got taller stands since the 70s. There you go. See, I knew you'd get a proper answer. There you go. We've got global warming, allegedly. allegedly. I, 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 I think that was him. <laughs> I'm going to give Dixon the benefit of the doubt. Are we giving Dixon the benefit on, of the doubt? What was that on, by the way? What was that on? <laughs> it looked like... ESPN kind of or something. Fox. ESPN. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, if it's on Fox, maybe he's got to toe the party line. <laughs> <global warming. laughs> he's making a pitch for a late-night right-wing talk show. Um, I don't think he's using it as a platform to say that global warming isn't happening. What do you believe? It's, a, oh, it's tricky, isn't it? It's a very unfortunate slip, which I think might be slightly Freudian. I think it's continued banter on his cap theory, that he's kind of saying that the caps thing disproves global warming. <laughs> so I think I think he's continuing the banter. It's a good point about caps as well. I, it's exactly the kind of conversation we'd have. So I can't. You, so you, your takeaway from this is that Lee Dixon raises some very good points. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you buy the theory that the taller stands have stopped goalkeepers wearing caps? It's a good question. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. I don't know if I do buy that. I, it's not fashionable when a goalkeeper wears one. I always think it's a sign of weakness. Do you? But you get a foreign goalkeeper wearing tracksuit bottoms. It's like you're not yeah. cut out for this. Yeah, yeah. The Stuart Pearce theory. Yeah. You're not. You can't handle this. I, I I would like Dixon to clip. I'm presuming you weren't watching Arsenal v Manu on ESPN. No, so, no, I just saw people talking. This, so people are talking about it. So I'm hope Dixon's going to come out and clarify his comments. That would be my hope. I could text him and ask, but I just think I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to find out. Let's yeah. just give him the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, let's just give him the benefit of the doubt before he's what? doing a Q and A with a. Uh, Matt Letizia on Getter or whatever it's called. Okay, tell us, Chris, about uh, Peter Shilton. And, uh, um, well, just Peter yeah. Shilton. That's what we're in it for, isn't it? <laughs> well, look, Jan Mulby. Thank you to Steve Davies who pointed this out to me. Jan Mulby's done an interview recently talking about Peter Shilton, talking about penalties. Why? This is a quote from Jan Mulby. Oh, Jan Mulby was an excellent penalty excellent taker. Excellent penalty taker. They're asking him about taking yeah. penalties. He was the Letitiae of his day. It's interesting because Jan Mulby actually is talking up Peter Shilton's penalty-saving abilities. 
Jan Mulby says this. It wasn't always straight. It wasn't always that straightforward, of course, taking penalties. Peter Shilton, for example, never used to move before the kick was taken. So you could never send him the wrong way as a result. But he would always usually start his dive when I was running back to the central circle for a restart. <laughs> so <laughs> that. that's a direct quote from Peter Shilton. <laughs> a direct quote from Jan Mulby. I, I love Shilton. that. Absolutely brilliant. It's interesting that he kind of talks up the tactics a bit. You can't send him the wrong way because he's he's going to go he's going to go the right way. But but this is this is the inherent problem. I can't believe we're back on this. <laughs> that like that there is something inherently you know a, an inherent victory or positive about having gone the right way as if it matters. It doesn't yeah. matter if you went the right way, but it went in. It makes no difference. There we go. Is that going to be the last mention of it? We will see. Should we move on to the um, electronic post bag? Let's do it. I'm Jim Rosenthal, and this is the electronic post bag. You've got mail. Uh, would you like a quick Strange Hill from Graham oh, yes, Buckley? Glad you brought up the dubious goals panel as it raised a wry smile on my face as I was listening. Surely I cannot be the only person who thought the below. For years, I mistakenly thought the word dubious had been chosen by the media to describe the goals panel and its credibility, honesty and integrity <laughs> and lack thereof. <laughs> the sinister goals panel. <laughs> I often thought it was such a bizarre coincidence that every newspaper and TV channel consistently used the same adjective to describe the goals panel. <laughs> Never dodgy or suspicious, only ever dubious. Inexplicably, it never occurred to me that the review was for dubious goals. Instead thinking, oh yeah, there's dubious characters on the goals panel. Well, no, no, chalk off that Yakubu goal. That's past I'm going. Okay, here's my dubious goals. Yeah, well, well, years later in my mid-twenties, my friend informed me of my mistake laughing as he did so. Thanks for bringing back the memories. Keep up the good work. Cheers, Graham. Should we cast the dubious goals panel? I'll go first. Dave Courtney, the old gangster. <laughs> the old gangster. Well, Hans Sagers would be part of the dubious goals panel. Wouldn't <laughs> I'll grovel our shoe in. <laughs> I'll grovel our be a shoe into the dubious goals panel. It, it is odd. Dubious is such a weird word in the context, isn't it? Like, it does draw attention to the fact, why have they used the word dubious? Which is so rarely used. I can't think of a time like in my con- life I've ever used the word. Contentious. Yeah, contentious. Yeah. Yeah. Disputed. Yeah. But dubious. You very rarely use that. Never, never use it outside of the context of this. But there we go. That is it's good to have Strange Hill back. Now, um, this is a, a feature I would call, I can't believe this happened after the 90s. This is from um, Sean Spinetto. Hi, chaps. Late to the podcast, but working my through, way through and loving it. On hearing the piece about weird program content on a recent podcast, it jogged my memory to an article in the Grimsby Town program when I visited with Derby. It was in 2003, but I hope you agree it deserves dispensation for being non-90s. I attached the article and will allow you to decipher your favourite carry-on-esque lines. So what this is, is a column in the Grimsby program, and this is why you won't believe this is after the 90s. It's called, Mandy is up for it, are you? And it's a picture of an attractive model in a bikini. Uh, But the bikini has Grimsby Town logos on it. And then the the column is written 
a string of innuendos by a sex-hungry woman about the Grimsby Town activity. <laughs> Jesus. So this is a column called Coming From Behind by Mandy Mariner. My new feature proved popular last Tuesday. I don't think I've ever gone down so well before. Well, maybe once or twice. <laughs> But people seem to enjoy a look back at one of those moments when all the huffing and puffing proves worth it as you come from behind and let out a huge sigh of satisfaction at your efforts. Today's match is from the season 1997-98, an epic season. Remember the Rumbelows Cup and the Holders Leicester City? Here at Blundell Park and 1-0 up at half-time in the third round tie. Then the Mariners came strongly in the second 45 minutes and victory was ours. Kevin Jobling was on as a sub, helping to change the game. Blow-by-blow blow jobbers wore down the foxes. And then Livo moved in for the kill. It's fair to say that the big man did not know too much about one of the goals. I think it hit him in the backside. But hey, if it gets you where you want to go, then don't be afraid to use your backside. That's something I've always believed in. What a victory. What a climax. I don't think I've experienced many like that before or since. Well, maybe one or two. Isn't that an astonishing thing to appear in the Grimsby Town programme? <laughs> God! <clears throat> I can't it's... believe that exists. <laughs> in 2003, in the, um, in the, in the official match day programme. That is, I mean, that is the kind of thing that... I've, I don't think I've ever read a porn magazine, but that's what I imagine the content is like, like the yeah. interviews. Yeah, exactly. It's a, I can't believe that's happened. <laughs> I simply can't believe it's happened. Is, can you it's, just get away with that in the lower leagues? Is that the thing? Is that what no, happened? you can't. What? Writing softcore pornography in your <laughs> match day programme. <laughs> Bizarre. Do you think so, it's the case that the, 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 like they hired the, the programme editor at Grimsby from like Fiesta or something yeah. like that? And he's like, oh, I, I know something that goes, oh, it goes down well. Maybe I'll text Lloyd Griffith and ask, yeah. If he's got any info on this, and we'll idea. tell you about it next week. Okay, uh, if, you, if you want to get in touch, this is how. Get in touch with the show. Email hello at quicklykevin.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at quicklykevin and sign up to the mailing list at quicklykevin.com. Before our main interview, if you'd like to join the Quickly Kevin fan club, head over to anotherslice.com forward slash Quickly Kevin. There you can get extended versions of all our episodes. Episodes are up seven days early. You have your opportunity to ask your own questions to the guests. Plus, there's two extra episodes a month. One with Ivo Graham joining us to work our way through the Steve Bruce books and another extra special episode each month. And an extra long version of this interview. Plus next week's episode is available for you there waiting now. And it is with the amazing Dion Dublin waiting there for you on with this episode. It is a great episode. I've absolutely loved this. If you enjoyed Mandy Mariner, you're going to enjoy this episode. James Brown was the editor of loaded in the nineties. He's also a big Leeds United fan. This is about how football took over the publishing industry in the 90s. This is James Brown.
Today's guest is a Leeds fan, but more importantly, he is one of Britain's most important cultural figures of the best decade of all, the 90s. <laughs> After working for the NME, he was the man who came up with Loaded Magazine, revolutionising the publishing industry and playing a huge role in making football cool. Please welcome James Brown. Hello. How are you doing, James? Thank you. You agree with that summation? Uh, I don't think I made football cool, but it's very nice to hear all of that other stuff. <laughs> I think what we did about football was we interviewed footballers in a way that fans would like to interview them. Yeah. So football interviews were back page of newspapers and they'd have yeah. a novel, novelty photograph. If a new striker signed, they'd have a cowboy hat and some six guns. Yeah. <laughs> And it was all very kind of butlins, you know, the way it yeah. was dealt with. And so we just started writing about them at length in much the same way my mates and I had been writing about music at the NME. Yeah. And they, they seemed to like it, you know, because they knew we wouldn't stitch them up. So they opened up a bit more. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise, gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things. But at least I knew they were there, just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive, or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side-by-side. Side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. We, we'll come to so many footballers you um, talk to. But, um, firstly, I've just read your brilliant memoir, Animal House, which is... Uh, incredible um i'd say it's i mean it's just so many great anecdotes it's so you're the first person to read am i oh yeah. wow you grew up you say it says next next door as a leeds fan to alan clark yeah opposite opposite that's an incredible kind of thing to have as a kid what was that like as a kid did you see much of him loads my mum and his mum were his, my mum and his wife were friends so I have memories of him coming back from the 1970 World Cup and unpacking his bag. Oh, wow. And also just, I can remember being in his house and watching the TV, looking for the results. And they were, I think they were playing away at, at Reading possibly, and me pronouncing it as Reading. And also 
putting his actual England caps on. I don't oh, know wow. if they get them anymore, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Used to with get a little cap. kind of tassel and stuff. Yeah, like a felt blue with yeah. kind of piping on it. I came and he had them in a, in, a, in a cabinet and putting them on, and um, it was great. His dog was called Pele. Oh, of course it was. <laughs> and did you ever play football with him? You must have had the opportunity. Did you ever go in the garden kick it about? I was always going and knocking on the door and asking him if he'd play. <laughs> he would. <laughs> I mean, you know, I was a really little kid, you know, so yeah. five, six, and, um, you know, he, he didn't mind me coming in and out of the house with my mum, but I don't think he fancied a kick around. I, I don't <laughs> You know, maybe he thought I might get injured or something. <laughs> Did you, you know what? It, what it made me think, I guess, was when I wrote my book, I think maybe that made, made, gave me the, uh, the idea that anything was possible. Yeah. And that, and that kind of famous people were, that were real, not just something that appeared in a magazine or on the television. Yeah, because I suppose Alan Clark, to you as a six-year-old, like would have been as untouchable if he hadn't lived across the road as, say, Gaza was to me when I was six or whatever. Yeah, totally. And what did you see? Were there other Leeds players that would come and go? Like, was mm. he... I was born in London. We moved mm. back to just outside Leeds. And um, we lived in this kind of posh place for a couple of years before I moved into Headingley. And um, it's the place where footballers still live. It's just outside Leeds. It's quite near where Leeds United train in Thorpe yeah. Arch, which is just outside Weatherby. So, you know, you used to see Paul Rainey. His wife was the hairdresser. I mean, they weren't walking up and down the, down the road, no. arm in arm, singing. Well, <laughs> it was, you know, I mean, I'm sure if you, if you go over to those places now, you'd bump, well, people did all the time with Bielsa. They, they bumped into him and, and got a picture all the time. And Yeah. You know. As a teenager, you get into writing fanzines and obviously music. Did you consider doing a Leeds fanzine? Like, because you're a big Leeds United fan. No, I mean, there weren't any football fanzines in this, you know, in the kind of mid-70s, apart from one called Foul, I think. Mm. A guy called Stan Hay did. And that was an irreverent, I think he described it as being like private eye for football or something like right. that. And um, no, I mean, the first fanzines that came out for football were kind of post the music fanzine boom that right, I was yeah. part of. And, yeah. And, uh, yeah, so when Saturday comes, and I wish I could, maybe it was off the ball, of course, maybe it was off the ball, but they both looked like the end. And they came out, I guess, at the end of the 80s or the early 90s. And then there was a boom in football fanzines. Yeah. So they all looked just like our music fanzines from, you know, the mid-80s, which have turned largely looked like the punk fanzines from the end of the 70s, like... 48 thrills and uh, sniffing glue and things. I'm really interested in the, like the, how, the, how music culture influenced what you did with football. And you were working at NME in the early nineties, spending a lot of time with bands. Like, so how often is, how often is football coming up with your conversations with different bands? And like, you're oh, spot on. I mean, it got to a point in the early nineties where I don't know if it's because everybody was in competition in a way, as well as being collective fans. But if you went to the Reading festival in say 1991, and you were stood backstage. The conversation, everyone would be stood around in blue kind of zip-up fleeces. Although, you know, the kind of like, there was a festival of it. Everyone wore fleeces. And people were just, especially all the A&R men and the record business people, they just talked about football. I think after 1990 and then the start of the Premier League or the Premiership, whatever it was called then, it just became much more visible. 
Yeah. You know, it really, as a kid, you never saw football. Yeah. That's why we played it so much. You never saw it. You'd see the FA Cup and you'd see the home internationals, which were great, which was just before the start of the season. Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, England have all played each other. Often fighting on the pitch for the between guys who yeah. played for the same teams. And, and then some of the World Cup, you know, I remember watching the Leeds players in 74, like Bremner and, and Jordan and so on, playing in that World Cup. I mean, it's so long ago now, but it's just, it's as with the accessibility to music. We yeah. could listen to anything possibly that we wanted to now. So you were just starved, which is also why you mentioned Shoot earlier. It's why things like that were so important to fans. Because, yeah. and most of us, you know, my son collects the stickers, you know, and the and, but it's all on YouTube for him now. He's watching people analysing different teams and FIFA and all of that. But most of our access to football was in the packs of cards with bubblegum in them. Yeah. Bubblegum was like brittle blue tack. It was <laughs> like, you know, you put it in your mouth, you probably cut the top of it. You got these great cards and it's just exactly the same thing as they get now with cards and stickers. But that was it. Yeah. There was nothing else. I mean, you didn't read a newspaper as a kid. You know, I can't even, I guess football focus was probably on, but there was no, you were just starved of it. So <laughs> things became kind of, players seemed even more legendary. Yeah. Then you get these names like from the 70s, I mean, we want to talk about the 90s, but the 70s like Breitner and uh, Cruyff and Naiskin. Yeah. yeah. You know, you'd, you'd probably see one or two games of them in the World Cup. And of course, England didn't qualify in 74. Yeah. Or 78. So throughout the whole of the 70s, we're essentially watching Scotland. And <laughs> Scotland, Scotland were mainly made up of Leeds, Man United, Liverpool, Rangers and Celtic fans. Maybe the odd Aberdeen player in, in yeah. the late 70s. And so that was it. You know, that was the access to football. And match of the day was on like, you know, after Starsky and Hutch or whatever was on, whatever the drama was on after the two Ronnies, you didn't see it. By the, uh, even at the night, like ninety Italian ninety World Cup, it still felt like that was a. It was probably the last World Cup where it felt like there was just players and teams you'd never heard of. Do you know what I mean? I, yeah. I know I was young or whatever. There was, that was coming to the end of that. In your um, book, you say you interviewed Marky e. Smith, and he had Panini stickers on his wall. Yeah, on his map. So Mark Smith on the fall. I mean, he wrote Kicker Conspiracy about football hooligans. Yeah. Which was a good. And I yeah. think I filmed that very. Very football club or something like that, the video. And I was just, I knew Mark quite well after I'd interviewed him a few times. I was at his house. The first time I went to his house, he had a map on the wall in a sort of little study area or the back room. And he just had two Man City players there stuck on. Do you think someone had given him the stickers? He's not going out and buying the packets, right? I've no idea how he would have sourced (laughs) (laughs) I can imagine Mark. Actually, that's a great question. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know. I, you know, I'll ask his, I'll ask his ex-wife when I see him. <laughs> was he as, I mean, this isn't football. Was he as difficult and caustic? No. no. He was really nice. He was like, was he? If, if Mark liked you, you know, he was nice. He was friendly. And he was yeah. also very polite to um, people who would be, you know, like cab drivers or waiters. Or he was, you know, he would often ask about my mom who was ill and, you know, if you were his mate and he liked you, then he was yeah. good. But I think if you're in the band, it was quite hard going. And <laughs> yeah. you know, I think he was it was great company, you know, it was a brilliant company. 
In your book, you discuss a charity gig, which you say was the first time you noticed football and music. I think it was 92, you said, football and music come together. And you yeah, say that... the, uh, the new CND or the anti-nuclear power. Yeah. So what was that that made you think this is a thing where they're... It was an amazing lineup. It was U2 when they were really good, when they had yeah. Atung Baby out. Before yeah. Atung Baby came out, they played this gig and they'd been in Berlin recording and they'd seen the Berlin Wall and they'd seen all the... Maybe the wall had come down by then, but they'd see all these Trabants and they had Trabants, which were the tiny Russian cars, oh, yeah. but hardly any bigger or different in design from dinky toys. And they had them hanging from the roof and they, they'd got very colourful and got great films and they'd really come out refreshed. I think they were going to break up. That was the impression I got from spending quite a bit of time with them yeah. not long after that. And out of that conflict, they created this great record. So yeah. it was U2, Public Enemy, Kraftwerk, and Big Audio Dynamite. Wow. So basically, you know, Mick Jones, it was, the, you know, the clash with yeah. Joe and the other two. And um, it was a brilliant gig, and it drew everyone out. So there was an unusual situation backstage where there were all the young Manchester bands like the Happy Mondays, the Inspiral Carpets, the Stone Roses, uh, and loads of other people on that scene. You spend a lot of time there. You meet the guys who were managing the bands or the photographers. Who were, so there was a DJs. It was a big, big scene of like young music bands. And there were the older music bands who were mates with U2. And that looked like a cue cover. So there were people like, uh, you know, people from The Pretenders or Aria, and they were kind of like yeah. more mature artists. Yeah. And there was, but then there was also this amazing array of footballers. It was like Kevin Moran, Kenny um, yeah. Dalglish, John Barnes, John Aldridge, Lee oh, Chapman. Yeah. I mean, real top, yeah. top. I mean, you, you just didn't be in rush. I remember watching, I was watching from the side through the bleachers, as you know, they call them in America. Mark Hughes was in front of me. We were watching from the side. He, he backed all, it was really weird. He backed all the way up. There was no one else there. He backed all the way up until he literally, he came about 10 feet until he just stood on my feet. And then he went down. <laughs> <laughs> took a dive. He took a dive. <laughs> no, but it was, so in the middle of all this, the guy called Pete Wiley, who was in a legendary Liverpool band yeah. called Wah, uh, and I were chatting, and somebody goes, bloody hell, look, there's Lou Reed. And Wiley goes, never mind that, there's Peter Reed. <laughs> <laughs> and literally, all of this huge crowd of guys, about 20 of us just marched over where Reed was sitting and started talking to him. Oh. And because he'd obviously been a man, you know, a popular yeah. Man City player after his Everton career, and and he'd been a popular player of England. You you always got a feel that Peter Reid was a was like a sort of a man of the people. Yeah, you know, and he I can remember sitting there. It was like a primary school or a nursery school class. He was sitting on a chair like this. People sitting on his other floor. And he's looking <laughs> You know, he'd be going, oh, I think what Kevin Ratcliffe is. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, when Tony Adams got into the team, it was like, just, it was like Jack and Ori with kids in the room. <laughs> and I actually, for ages, I thought that was the start of what happened in the 90s, that moment for me when you just had this, this mixture. And I think also those bands, you know, those, those bands like the Charlottes and the Mondays and so on, 
they were all the same age as me. So that was great being a music writer. Yeah. You know, it's just suddenly they were like your mates. You know, they weren't people yeah. you looked up to. I'd looked up to. So there was a lot more commonality in. And, uh, you know, we'd all grown up playing football and watching, you know, footballers, you know, when we could, going to the grounds or whatever. So it was it was a great moment. The moment the football music really come together, I thought, you know, New Order doing the Italian 90 song. Yeah. But are New Order actually football fans? How did that happen? And, and did Keith Allen play a massive role, actually, in some of this? Well, I spent quite a lot of time with them. And I think Hooky, I mean, I remember being at Old Trafford and Hooky had... I think so chosen the songs that were being played beforehand and there was an interview with him in the programme. So I think that's, I think, but when I was with them, I wasn't hearing a lot about football. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, don't, I mean, what I've, what I've heard over the years is four or five different people in the music business claiming to have originated that idea, but I guess it was just <laughs> a collective. I think the thing was, I think that song existed, the music to that song existed. So it took it away of the thinking, how do we get 20 blokes to sing along? They just had the music. And then they had somebody who was into football, keeps like a big Fulham fan, who, you know, understood football, so he could write a song about it, rather than, often there were songs that seemed to be defined to just have gangs of defenders chanting. Yeah. And <laughs> singing along, which isn't really a good starting point. After, um, so kind of, when that football and music and culture, and they all kind of, come together in the nineties. So obviously you go on and you uh you you go from the enemy to founding loaded mm-hmm. um the kind of defining magazine of the era and football was central to the pitch right or your idea of what the kind of atmosphere of the magazine would be is that right totally, totally. i basically just wanted to get into football for free <laughs> <laughs> that was an underlying factor and um the first guy i appointed on the magazine was Tim, uh, who became the assistant editor. And he, I chose him because he was into the jam and he supported Leeds. So we could have understood that mass audience. And then on the first thing I ever wrote down as a story idea after drinking was bald footballers. So it was sort of a nostalgia in the same way we're talking about the nineties. Yeah. That is my memory of those cards. Yeah. These really, really old looking men like, yeah. You know, Ralph Hennessy of Spurs and Bobby Charlton and, you know, they had the hair kind of... Well, we've, we've, over. we've talked about the Bobby Charlton comb-over before and what I'd be interested in your theory on this is that as the top gets thinner, yeah, over the years, yeah, but the sides remain as strong. So yeah. why is the top getting thinner? Can That's you... called male pattern baldness. <laughs> but the, no, 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 the top is totally thin. But the comb over is getting smaller and smaller. Like he's trying to just, you know, you've got, how old are you? I'm, I'm 39. <laughs> okay, give it eight or nine years. That answer will present itself in the middle. <laughs> would you would you go with the Bobby uh, Charlton comb over as a kind of um No, definitely not. It's not long enough now. So you wrote down bald footballers and football nostalgia. Also, yeah. did you say I did I read in the book that you said that you went to a Barcelona away day and you basically yeah. said this is what I want the magazine to be. Yes, I don't know if you remember, but um, Leeds were able to replay a game at a neutral venue that had been... um, The result had been cancelled because Stuttgart, we'd played Stuttgart in Germany, Mm. and they'd come to Ellen Road and they'd won on goal difference or something like that. 
And then just near the end, like one of the officials realized that they'd, I think they'd played a fourth foreign player or something. Oh, like yeah, that. when they had the three foreigners. It's been a kind of yeah. a rule broken. So they changed the replay. Not It should have just been at Leeds again, or, or I guess they should have just given us the result. It was in um, Camp Nou in Barcelona. And, and Tim and I went out and it was great. It was like that huge stadium with two or 3,000 Leeds fans at one end and a similar amount of Stuttgart, Stuttgart fans at the other end. And just before kickoff, these uh, Spanish came in and said yeah. something like, they had a massive banner, but it says something like, Barca v Germany. Barca hates Germans. There was, was something that made it really clear. And there was a big cheer. There was a great atmosphere. And um, Leeds won. And just off the Ramblers that night, me and my mate, we met a couple of different, we met, we met a fireman from Preston and a pipe fitter from, from Colchester. And the four of us just were just hanging out in the bars. And I remember one bit being in a great bar and the next minute looking at a beautiful church. And then we blagged into um, a nightclub. I convinced them that we were a pop group, the farm, which was always <laughs> easy to do because the, the farm were one of the first bands who didn't look like pop stars. They just <laughs> like people, everyday people. And um, so... I turned to Tim and said, this is what the, this, this feeling that we've got tonight is what the magazine should be like, like having a brilliant night. And I think football has that thing that it doesn't matter if you've been to Oxford and Cambridge or whether you've never been to university, whether you've been rich, whether you're poor, whether you're whatever race or sexuality you are, you can enjoy watching men and women booting a ball around on the pitch. It doesn't matter where you're from. Um, and... I guess that's my point was that magazines before loaded had been defined. Well, you had to be a cool guy to read the face. Or you had to be a really smart guy to read GQ. And that was the reason they didn't sell many copies because they were yeah. saying only certain people can read these magazines. Yeah. And I kind of wanted loaded to be all inclusive. And from the very off, the first thing I'd ever written was said it would have old legendary people interviewed who were knackered and past it with brilliant stories to tell a bit like me today <laughs> it's gone full circle <laughs> and, and cool and, and, and young up and coming people with attitude like you know like you two and uh, and, and that combination the idea was it would be for you know a very open house and, and I think editorially you know we could have an interview with Carl Cox the DJ on one page, and an interview with Ozzy Osbourne, even before he got called for his TV series, on another page. And and the same with the footballers. You know, we could have legends from the 70s, like Chopper Harris from, from Chelsea or Charlie George. And then on the next page, we'd have an interview with Steve Bull, you know, or, or Mike Sheeran. I mean, that was another thing that I deliberately did was... Did Mike Sheeran make it into Loaded? You know, what we did was the, the big features space would have like Fowler and McManaman. Yeah. Or, you know, Phil Bubb, Gary Kelly and Jason McAteer talking about the World Cup in 94 for Ireland. But then we had a sports section at the back within the, the general mix of different things. We had a review section at the back. We'd always have a football interview in there. So it would be someone like Claridge or Sheeran yeah. or Steve Ball. It was deliberate. We wanted to have players that were from the lower leagues, but the lower league yeah. legends, because I, like I said, I wanted it to be all inclusive. And, and I understood that all the nightclubs we covered shouldn't be in the centre of London as, as things yeah. 
you know, the cool style press had been. This should be in Newcastle or Newcape or yeah. Aberdeen or Aberystwyth. We can go all over the country because post-Acid House, there were brilliant clubs everywhere and yeah. raves. But it was the same with football, you know. I think Mike Sheeran scored 50 goals in, in what is now League One. He would have made a couple of amazing seasons. And I think he, went, he was with Stoke. So uh, there were just good stories. And people like Claridge you see on television now. But back then, all those years ago, Phil Tufnell, Steve Claridge, Paul Merson, people who had problems with their life, whether it was drink or gambling or drugs or whatever, they were never allowed anywhere near the television. Yeah. yeah. Nowhere near. And so we just leapt on all those guys because they're the ones you want to interview. Yeah. You know, well, you want you don't want to interview boring sports people who would no. be coached. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Rated PG-13. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. No, totally. It'd be a lot more difficult now to do that, I think, with like, because obviously the no. 90s footballers are a lot more open. One of the, like, if not the greatest 90 footballer, almost the cover star to loaded issue one was Eric Cantona. Is that yeah. right? Well, we so wanted- that's like, you're almost saying that that is the perfect person to totally. brand this magazine. Totally. And in fact, like about a decade ago, I got asked to try and rescue a project. There were a company were trying to, make a male grazia. Right. <laughs> it wasn't getting anywhere. So I went in and we put Eric on the cover. I found it when I was going through my magazines. It's, it was still applicable, you know. Ten years yeah. ago, he was still a kind of semi-mysterious figure before we became yeah. a... I mean, he's almost become as prevalent as, you know, the, the kind of like the coffee advert people. You know, now yeah. he's on loads of ads. But back then he was mysterious. And in, in the early 90s, when he arrived, he was... It was like what you said about that 90 World Cup that you, you know, nobody knew who Scalacci was. He yeah. was a sub. I think he'd got into the squad because I mean, Rossi wasn't around or was out of form or something. And yeah. he was, um, Eric, nobody had heard of Eric Cancel in Britain. And he shows up. He was amazing at Leeds. And it was, I mean, he didn't win us the league as he's often referred to, but he was kind yeah. of just, it was a little bit like a reinforcements arriving near the end. Yeah. And, 
you know, it was enigmatic. You know, they, they, they told, one of the stories I heard was that he used to go up, he had a shed on the moors in Otley and Ilkley, which is like 10 miles north of Leeds. Yeah. And he'd go up there and he had a motorbike and a shotgun and he would go <laughs> hunting without a helmet with his bike. So you've got this almost Mad Max image of this guy with a shotgun on his back with a motorbike and that the police would turn a blind eye to it because he was this... Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but that's the sort of story yeah. that was emanating about him. And so we just, you know, we said, let's, let's put Eric on the first cover. But... There were no photographs of footballers in those days. No photographs other than in kit. Yeah. They didn't... It was before John Terry got signed up by King of Shaves and everybody started doing branding. And yeah. they were just... We got we got three pictures of him. One was of him in double denim, hitchhiking. <laughs> I don't know what it was. Another was in a Paco Rabanne cream suit on the catwalk. And another one was just oh, looking no. miserable in a pub with having a pint with his agent. <laughs> they were the only three pictures we could find for any of the agencies that didn't have him in a red shirt, which we obviously, as Leeds fans, we weren't going to do. So he was going to be the, the, the first cover, and then we just didn't have enough to put him on. Um, we didn't have an interview. We got the guy who sometimes did press conferences for Man United to put all the clips together into a piece. And Man U kicked off about that. When it was a feature, oh, so they just time. kind of botched together a kind of yeah. It was just just it's called a cuttings job. People often do that with film stars and stuff like that. Yeah. If you're an editor, you can you recognise them. But um, yeah. So, but years later, I did meet Eric. Oh, did you? Um, and it was quite um, when Joe Strummer died. Uh, mm. They organised a party for him, you know, memorial party, not after the funeral, but just a few months later. And it was at the White Cube Gallery that Jay Jopling, Damien Hurst's uh, yeah. sort of manager or agent, owned. And it was an amazing turn. I, I was invited. I was there was so many of the punk legends and new wave heroes, and it was just absolutely amazing. And then afterwards, we went on to Cargo or somewhere in, in, in Shoreditch. And at about midnight, the doors flew open, and these five guys walked in. It was like a cowboy scene. These guys walks in like that. <laughs> and you thought, oh, my God, who's this? And they had sleeping bags under their arms. Straight up, they arrived with sleeping bags under their arms. Like they were roughing it. <laughs> it was Eric and his brothers and friends. And one of his friends was uh, a French photographer called Richard Ajard, I think is how you pronounce his name. And he'd taken, you might have seen this picture, it's a brilliant photograph. Of Eric in Maori war paint. I've not seen that. I'd found them in a French Spanish photography magazine called Photo. And they were, he, I think he lived quite near Barcelona after he retired. Yeah. Um, which is not far from the part of France where he'd grown up. And he, so he was, in, he was in this amazing garden of sculptures with this war paint. And I'd put it on the cover of British GQ when I was the editor of that. Yeah. And, you know, when they walked in, Everyone was like, fucking hell. And me and my mates went straight over to them. I was with, uh, and there was another guy I didn't know. It was a big, he was a cockney red man you hooligan called Faz. And then my mate Dean, who writes with Irvin Welsh. Yeah. Uh, who's from Bradford. And we just went over to him and introduced ourselves. And I kind of reckon, even the guy said, oh, I'm Richard. I said, are you the photographer? And he said, yeah. And I explained that I put him on the cover and straight away went, Eric! 
Uh, and he caught Eric over and said, this is the guy who put you on the cover of GQ with that war plane. So I was like, wow, this is amazing. I've already spent two hours chatting with various members of people like, you know, the Undertones, Buzzcocks and UB40 or whoever at the, at the Strummer event, the Pistols. And then Eric shows up. It was really late. They got the last plane from France. And um, then my mate got Eric in a headlock and started kissing him. <laughs> It really, it really ruined it. Eric and I were sitting down with this moment. We were just sitting down chatting and stuff. He was talking a little bit about Leeds, and, but he was very quiet, really. He kind yeah. of, and my mate Bucky came over and then Eric and just literally climbed on him and started kissing him and got him there. And Eric just went with the headlock like this. <laughs> Is he okay with it? Did he really kick off or...? I had to drag Bucky off. It was um, (laughs) Paul. Paul Buck was a he's a music agent. He was a a Man U fan. It it ruined the night. But Eric was fine (laughs) with it. He just let him kiss him until we dragged him off. Then he disappeared. (laughs) You you met loads of footballers from the nineties. I just want to touch on a few. An unlikely name I didn't expect to see in your book was Louis Van Gaal. You see, the thing is, Josh, that's probably five to six percent of the amount of stories I could have filled. I tried to give typical stories, so I forget yeah. that I put them in. One of the best things about Loaded being a success was every month we basically got to go on holiday or a school trip. I had a credit card. Nobody was saying you can or can't do anything. So we would literally say, where should we go? And some, you know, some guys would go surfing in Hawaii and then somebody else would go bobsleighing in Switzerland and but the city breaks were popular. Yeah. Especially ones that had drugs on sale for free, you know, like legally. Yeah. But we went to Amsterdam and we took this dope cake. We were in the shop and I said, what, what does this do? And the lady goes, these three will have a nice time. These two will stop an elephant. <laughs> <laughs> Another drug addict tonight on the on the staff just grabbed them, necked them, and she was right. You know there were no elephants in Amsterdam the night, but by then we went to watch Ajax versus, I think it was either Den Haag or, or William the Twelfth or whatever that team yeah. was called, and Ajax yeah. hammered them. It was like six one or something. But by the time half time had passed, I was actually crawling around on the floor. Barking and howling and just like a dog. And the, the good thing, and tears and laughing, and I was really fucked. I mean, lots of people have been there. You don't have to have been a magazine yeah. editor to have experienced that. And afterwards, they had the mixed zone then, which okay, they yeah, now, yeah. and they still have around the world. I was in Japan a couple of years ago and with my mate, and we were like talking to players in the mixed zone in Kobe. Um, and... Um, I think they have it in some clubs in England now, but in Holland it yeah. was a big thing. And we had press passes. I was quite a prolific liar in those days. I'm not now. The book is, there's no dishonesty in the book at all. And um, I went up to Louis van Gaal, still tripping, and asked him when the Mark Overmaster Man United deal was going to be finished, like it was just a done deal. <laughs> this was obviously before Overmars joined Arsenal a few years mm-hmm. later when Wenger showed up, but... Um, and Louis, the more, he was so vociferous that this wasn't happening because obviously it wasn't. Yeah. That it sounded like he was protesting too much. And the Dutch journalists, particularly the Ajax supporting journalists, started getting really worried. And 
And, and I told them I was from the Mirror or the Sun or something, you know, British tabloid sports. We were covering, they'd been told by Man United it was happening. And all I could see was his head glistening, getting angry and angry with a sweater and sweater. Basically, my mates dragged me out and it was just about, you know, we kind of had access to a world yeah. the magazine that players wanted to be in it or you'd see them at the sort of bars you'd go to or they'd take you out or they'd come to our parties or you'd bump into them on drugs in a meat zone. In a... <laughs> <laughs> Did you hang out with the Ireland team as well quite a lot? Just after Loaded started, we went to the shoot because we, we kind of shared some... Uh, well, actually, we didn't share because we used the shoot photo library a lot for the yeah. nostalgia pictures. Yeah. There's a guy there, Duncan. He was great. I used to love going in there. I mean, oh, I bet that was a great This is pre digital. It was just, yeah. it was like long metal, huge cabinets, and you kind of do a wheel. It's like something about a submarine. These yeah. doors open, you could go down, and there were just thousands and thousands of drop down hanging cardboard envelopes. And it says something like, you know, Birmingham City, 1970s. And you pull it out and there'd be these great shots of Andy oh, Gray and Bob Latchford with massive, not even mullets, because they, they were long everywhere. Yeah. I used to, when I was in development on the magazine, I used to go up there a lot. And um, the shoot invited us to the, the Goal of the Year Awards. Oh, wow. Who knew that Oh, it might even have been the Golden Boot. It might have been the Division One shoot-sponsored Golden Boot. Yeah. Where, where are they hosting that? Old Trafford, unfortunately. <laughs> Tim and I took marker pens and did a few of the backs of the posters, you know, the backs of the, which I like doing. I've done that at a few grounds when I've been in areas that wouldn't expect vandalism. <laughs> <laughs> You're having the Sky Sports box at Chelsea. Take the pictures off. You'll, you'll see a few leads. <laughs> and at that shoot goal of the year, we met Macatea and... Now, the centre-back who played for Bolton. And he Alan, Alan Stubbs. Stubbs. Yeah. So Alan Stubbs and McAteer, we had a really good laugh. We had a, just had a really good night. And they liked the magazine. And they just they got in touch with us. We rang the office. And Jason said, look, we've got these Irish football awards. I had such a good laugh, do you want to come? So Tim, the assistant editor, and I got in a car, went on a ferry, showed up and uh, on the border. It was a Sunday night. And the Republic were playing the North on a Wednesday night in a World Cup qualifier. So they were staying just south of the, of the border with the North in this country house hotel. And we got there and it was more like being with a band than a football team. Roy Keane was at the bar with, with Niall uh, Quinn. Keane, as I put in the book, you couldn't tell whether he was just quite a modest young man then. It was an early sign of the madness and we love and now enjoy curious yeah. analysis. But I remember him going to bed at like 10 to 11. We got there about half 10, went straight to the bar, checked into the hotel. And he said, as he was going out the door, he said, no, 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 Niall's a much better player than me. So we went out and Niall Quinn stayed up as a senior player drinking with yeah. his other guests. About quarter past nine, Charlton, the manager, is wandering around, looking furious, hunting for players who he'd heard weren't in. Half 11, Babsy, McAteer, and a few of the others come pelting in. I mean, sprinting to get there for the curfew. And they got in, and we saw Phil, and he just said, uh, what, what, what room are you in? So <laughs> 12 or whatever. He said, all right, I'll see you there in half an hour. I'll see you there in 10 minutes. 
So we went, he went off and went to bed. Everybody was waiting for Gary Kelly. And eventually I got hold of one of the FAI guys who didn't look like, he looked like he was closer to the players than, than, than uh, Jack. And uh, he said, no, 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 they're all in now. They're all in there. But we knew Kells hadn't come in. So when we got in the room with Babsy, I said, where is he? He said, oh, he's led him on a wrecking crew. He won't be back for hours. He's just surrounded by people in the pub because he really was. Yeah. He was one of the few guys in that team who were actually from Ireland. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> generation. They weren't London with Irish parents like yeah. Andy Townsend or, or Cascarino. No parents, you know, no, no Irish blood. I don't think he was there then, but the um and we sat up till about two or three in the morning drinking with Babsy. And he told us the most amazing stories. And it was like reading the book about Led Zeppelin. Just <laughs> no, no drugs, but all yeah. the well, he was he joined Liverpool by then and he was shocked at all the groupies that Liverpool had. And next morning we got up, they went out to train. I said, How are you gonna train? He said, I'm gonna bin bag it. I said, What's that? He said, You can play it wherever plastic, you know, like a bin bag, a black bag yeah. under the shirt, and it sweats all the alcohol out. Wow. They went, they went out to train at 9.30 the next morning. We we had a quick chat, met, met Gary and and Kells and uh uh Jason McAteer. 20 minutes later, they were back in. I said, what are you doing? He said, ah, oh, Jack don't fancy it. He said, let's go and get another bacon sandwich. <laughs> so they were like, it's easier to access footballers now because of yeah. Instagram and, and Twitter and things. And they've all got commercial deals, so you get a lot more opportunities to interview them. But in those days, there were, there were no phones. There was yeah. no taking photographs. Yeah of an yeah. Irish fullback sitting in a bar surrounded by people he probably shouldn't have been surrounded <laughs> by at 1.30am on a Sunday night. Did you go out with the Spice Boys kind of Liverpool team then as well? From like, you know, Babs? Yeah, a few Mackenzie. times. Yeah, they they came to some of our events and then a couple of times when Jason or uh, Jamie Redknapp, you know, they, these yeah. boys would all be in the magazine. They like they liked being in Loaded. Did a lot of the footballers read Loaded then? Yeah, absolutely. There's none of this. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. None of this and headphones and locking themselves yeah. in. They were just sitting around on coaches like any football team. That's what was interesting. They were like yeah. any football team going on an away game. They would be sitting on coaches. And um, in the run up to Euro 96, England were training at Burnham Beaches or somewhere. And um, I thought, well, I'll send them some magazine. I've been there once with a friend who lived nearby in Marlow. I thought, well, I'll just send a box of them and they'll get there. And we used to have this thing called Platinum Rogues, which was the Premier League of bad behaviour. And they yeah, usually yeah. were just people either getting away with things or being an arse or funny stories of things that had gone wrong with famous people or, or people who weren't famous but funny. I sent this box over. I think Gazza was, I think Gazza was on the cover, which was why I sent it. And um, I was in Terry Venables' nightclub which in itself scribes. sounds strange. You know? <laughs> <laughs> what are scribes like? I always imagined it. was just a, like a, you know, a, a glossy, it was more like a bar than a night. Yeah. You know, it was kind of like a bar and a kind of stage. He loved doing karaoke. So would you see Venables doing karaoke in there? Yeah, well, loads of them. What, what kind of songs are you doing? It's got to be my way and stuff, yeah, right? Obviously, Frank Sinatra. Yeah, <laughs> obviously. Kenny Sheringham would be in there. And I think it was a, this time I think it was a 90, 90 Minutes magazine of maybe when they launched Goal, 
90 Minutes and Goal were ran from the office right next door, yeah. through the wall from mine, uh, loaded. And um, we went over there and I'd sent these magazines. I didn't know if they would get to them. And I was in the toilets and Terry came in and it all went quiet. And I came out of the toilet cubicle I was in and the guy, all these guys kind of went, oh, Terry, this is James. He does Loaded. Have you heard of it? He goes, of course I've heard of it. I can't get it out of the player's hands when I'm doing my talks. <laughs> but the thing, the reason I mentioned Premier, the, the bad behaviour chart, the, the Platinum Rose was, it was only after I sent it that I realised about five of the players were in it for different things. Really? And thought. But it was, the, it was the perfect magazine for anybody who was trapped anywhere, you know, like yeah. so even the army and you had a lot of sitting around or you had a job where you were, you know, sitting around or uh, anyone who's traveling a lot, you know, but not driving, you know, people, any, people who are spending time on trains and, you know, and Bob Mortimer called me one day, said, oh, I love the latest issue. He said, it's at least an hour's read. <laughs> <laughs> I was really put out, you know, it would take 30 days to produce this thing. I said, Bob, come on, man. There's a lot more like this. Listen, Brownie, that's what he called me, like my mates from home. Yeah. He said, an hour's a great, it's a good time. It's a long time to stick with a magazine. If you're a reader, which I yeah. never thought about, because we produced every word on every page. Yeah. Gaza was obviously a, um, up with Cantona for the most iconic. He was a cover star as well of Logan, yes. right? How do you go, can you, is it easy to get Gaza to be on it the was cover? so hard to get football interviews in those days. So when I did Merson, I had to pay him 500 quid. So that was it. You'd pay him money. They weren't particularly good interviewees. Gaza, however, is gold. And one of the staff, uh, a guy called Adam Black, one of the loaded staff was, he still is a table tennis coach and player. Yeah. He said to me one day, he said, oh, this weekend I was, I was with Gaza's agent, Mel Steen, I was teaching his son. I said, can you get an interview? He went, oh, yeah, I'm for <laughs> <laughs> So that's how we got the interview, because Adam coached, but there was a requirement. Gaza said he didn't want any money, but could we get him some videos for his stepson? <laughs> so, so we called, um, called HM. What kind of videos? Kind of videos? Yeah, yeah, well, like, you know, Bugsy Malone and stuff like that. Yeah. This is like a video. What? There's no DVD. Yeah, yeah. Just want just want some films on VHS. Yeah, Yeah, some new films, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, you know. Yeah. Whatever, kids' films. So we called HMV and said, look, can you just can we get some films for Gaza and we'll say thanks to HMV at the end? They said, yeah. So one of the staff went around. (laughs) Bought 50. I mean, remember how thick videos were? They were (laughs) were massive. And then we got him sent up to Gaza. And then John Wilde, pre-season, who was our lead interviewer, he went out to Scandinavia. Where I think he'd moved to Rangers by this point. They were doing a pre-season tour. And he got, John was waiting in the reception and, and he got a text, whoever the contact was, you know, and Gaza came out and he said, are you loaded? He goes, yeah. He said, come here. And he took him in. He took John into where all the players were and goes, this is the guy that's getting me the videos. <laughs> the guy's getting the videos for Regan. He's getting everyone's getting all these videos. He was just couldn't believe it. Then they were slightly delayed, and I remember ringing the office complaining. But then he got there, and he was he was absolutely delighted. So fifty videos was the gas. It was a good interview as well, and a good photographs. He had bleach blonde, 
I think no. that was the cover, either just before or just after '96. Whenever, whatever the, whenever he joined Rangers. Did you and you met him yourself, presumably at some point as well, right? You get these interviews and you're like, I have to send someone else out to meet Paul Gascoigne. I'd love to do that myself, but you. I was at a party once uh, at Pinewood Studios and Gazza was there. I think that was a Pet Shop Boys party, and he had. That's when he was knackered from Lazio after the right. Gary Charles tackle, and he had a. I remember he was sitting there in a like a shell suit and this big, like a case on his leg. And I think I can't remember where else I've seen him, but I did meet him years later. Yeah, just really often people ask me, you know, what what was the most loaded moment? And it was years after it, it was it, I was interviewing Liam Gallagher from Music Magazine, and my mate texted me and said, "What are you doing?" I said, "I'm interviewing Liam Gallagher." He said, "I'm with Gaza." at the Groucho Club, which is a well-known yeah. media haunt. And uh, I said to Liam, we just finished. I said, do you want to go meet Gaza? And he went, yeah. But Liam was not allowed in the Groucho because he got drunk and thrown some snooker balls around and smashed the top snooker room up. So I had to vouch for him. I said, James, he can come in. It didn't think there'd be any problem. It was like two o'clock in the afternoon. We got upstairs and Gaza was pretty drunk. And he'd had quite a lot of Sambucas and he wasn't supposed to be drinking. We arrived, there were all these empty Sambuca glasses and loads of Haribo everywhere. And I said to my mate, Dan, I, I thought he wasn't drinking. And he said, that's why he's got the Haribo. He's, and I said, because when I stop drinking, you start eating loads of sugar because yeah. of all the sugar and alcohol. Right, right, yeah. He craves it. And so Gazza was on, the, I don't know how he'd gone from the Haribo to, you know, the Tang Fastics to the... Uh, <laughs> Sambucas with the, the remember there was never coffee bean in them, and he was knocking oh, yeah. shots back. And he insisted on Liam singing. And it was go on, man, go on, sing us, go on, live forever. You know, it was like you know, Liam was getting quite narked. Eventually, I knew that Liam had a son the same age as mine. So I just started singing the SpongeBob SquarePants theme. Whoa, he lives in a pineapple under the sea. And Liam stood up and went, SpongeBob, square pine. <laughs> finished, the tune, finished the theme tune. Gazza was delighted. Because <laughs> it got to the point where Liam was going, I'm not asking you to keep the ball in the air and do some headers. <laughs> Gazza told the most insane stories that afternoon. He told us about, he briefly dated Liz Hurley. He told us he'd been arrested, not arrested, but but like held back by security for shoplifting. He told us just, I mean, there was five or six of us sitting there listening to him. That was in Spain and he got off because one of the guys had recognised him from Lazio and it was nuts. It was absolutely nuts. But he, I mean, I love him. I, mean, I hope yeah. he's okay. It's not, yeah. I wouldn't want to, Gazza's, you know, like George Best, you don't really, you don't want to glorify the drink. And he, he, he's not a great guy because he drank a lot by any means. Yeah. He, he's just, as a personality, when he's sober and and together, he's, he's very entertaining. But obviously, when, he's, when the drink takes over, he's not in a good place. And, um, yeah, he was great. But he reminded me of, remember that fast show character on Lucky Alf? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Always getting electrocuted. Every anecdote ended. You, you could hear him go, oh, bugger. <laughs> Anyway, Liam and I had to go and get our kids. At like, you know, 45 minutes later, we had to go and get the kids to pick them up from school at like quarter past three. And um, I'm down the steps, halfway out of the, of the club, and, and he just goes, hang on a minute. And he just ran back upstairs. And I heard this, 
I'm always screaming like, no, Liam, no. And he'd gone back and got the fire extinguisher, just let it off all over. <laughs> and he said, and by that point, I just kept walking and Liam came running out. He said, run. <laughs> he stuck to the next street. I didn't even, wasn't even beyond Soho Square when the phone went and said, James, he's barred. <laughs> <laughs> And you're and you're paying for the you're paying for the fire extinguisher. <laughs> One thing that I kind of loved about Loaded, you get these bold out posters that were half a. There was one where it was like I can't remember the model, but it was it'd be a model on one side, then it'd be a footballer on the other. So it'd be like you'd get like Sophie Anderton and Kenny Dalgleish were your yeah. poster options. Yeah, or the one I, the the one I put on yesterday on Instagram was which is at james james brown if you want any more of it um cindy crawford on one side and a painting of a steam train on the other (laughs) (laughs) you've got to realize we were just you know essentially we were just young guys dicking about (laughs) we were doing things that you know even with your mates yeah holiday or something where you spend a lot of time and you go beyond the normal things and you start doing stupid things. It was yeah. like every day. There were no adults. <laughs> so I, really, I just thought it'd be funny if we start putting really kind of strange things. Because we started off, as you've just said, we'd put kind of hot woman that we knew the, the readers would like on one side and maybe Kenny Daglish or George Best or The Clash, you know, our heroes on the other side. So it worked. You know, if you like the culture, if you like the girls, you know, you could, you could choose what you put up. After a while, I started putting things like fish and chips or just a <laughs> closing shot of fish and chips or a bacon sandwich or, um, you know, battleship. <laughs> I started thinking about this. I don't know. It's a place that hasn't been totally revolutionised and modernised yet is the greeting card stand. Yeah. You can yeah. still find quite weird interpretations and deliveries of what men are into. Yeah. You go into a news agent, like especially in a smaller town or a kind of news agent that's not been modernized. Maybe it's still got something as quaint and weird as magazines still in it. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, you know, there'd be happy birthday, grandpa. There'd be a kind of weird painting of a guy fishing. Yeah. Like, <laughs> or like, happy birthday, son. Nine today. There'd be a picture of three guys in indeterminate football kits. Or chasing a ball that isn't actually on the on the painting. So that was where I was going with that. That's, yeah. I said, why don't we start doing posters of things like that? And, and like the airfix model paintings on the front. Yeah. It was just nostalgia, you know? It was like... Yeah. One of the ways the Loaded kind of used the footballing vernacular was you have stuff like the Crisp World Cup and stuff. Yes. Obviously now has become such a kind of format but like that was the first time you saw that. Do you remember who won the Chris World Cup? I was Absolutely. Thinking... I was in my office and how was it decided? We well, all genuinely was, take it quite seriously. The one thing I remembered from science lessons at school, which I didn't do very well in any yeah. lessons, never mind science, was that if you do an experiment, it's got to be under controlled circumstances. Yeah. So I said, yeah. we're gonna do this properly. So we bought something like 64 bags of crisps, which in 1995 or 1994 was very hard to do. Yeah. So we had things like apple rings. There weren't things like Tesco and Sainsbury's locals where you could get endless bags of crisps. One of the boys was out for hours trying to get 64 <laughs> bags of crisps, and they didn't have jumbo packs then. 
none of that. They were just individual. So we decided we'd have one crisp each and we'd have 64, take it down to like 32, yeah. take that 16, 8, 4. And but obviously by the end of it, we were like, we were just all out of crisps. We, <laughs> we were all out of crisps. And the other weird thing was we were speeding. You eat that many crisps. We were there for hours doing this. It was just before we finished the issue, which was why it was so small in the mag. And at the very end, we couldn't decide on the last two. Someone, yeah. Somebody said, let's call the Pope. So this is, this is true. Yeah. We rang the Vatican. And you would imagine that an Italian would answer the phone, and it was an Irish guy. And the guy just was laughing. And the guard guy, whoever was on the phone, was yeah. in my little office. And they were like... I said, oh, really? He said, okay, put the phone on. He says, an Irish priest, eh? He says, he's a hula hoops man. <laughs> and then after that, after we knocked them all, when, when the Pope couldn't decide, we just decided yeah. we had no more crisps left, so we would call the companies. Yeah. And we couldn't, then we couldn't call the companies, so we ran cab offices in each of the, uh, the towns that the crisps were producing. One was in America, one was in Leicester, and we decided which... Ever city was cheaper to get to the airport in a cab. <laughs> and that's how it was decided. Amazing. <laughs> but Amazing. after that, we did, it was so popular, that, that feature that we did vodka, breakfast cereals, pretty much all, all sorts of stuff. It became a template. And, you know, as, as years have gone by, other people have used that. One from Michael quickly is um, you wrote for the Leeds United magazine. Yeah. What was that like as an experience? Did you get to meet all your kind of heroes in that? Situation? Well, they weren't my heroes. They were just the great players of the day. What happened yeah. was when I was um, in 1998, I stopped drinking and because I had to really. I wasn't, it wasn't getting any better at it. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't found a way to put a plug in it each day. And then... Um, I suddenly had hours. I mean, really, uh, between six yes. o'clock and midnight were, and indeed every lunchtime, every afternoon, were just suddenly yeah. so much time to do stuff. So I, I noticed that the Leeds mag, official mag, was done in Manchester and it wasn't very good. And it was maybe, or maybe it was even closing or something. So I had a mate who was Gary Speed and David Batty's agent. Yeah. And I said, see if the club want me to do a mag for them in my spare time and I'll get loads of really good writers and photographers and designers who all support leads. So they came back, they were delighted. It was some new guys had just yeah. owned it. But what I didn't know was they were running leads from Argyle Street, which is oh, just right, yeah. down from Oxford Street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the chairman had an office in Argyle Street. Oh, wow. So we set up in his office. So I'd bomb over at lunchtime from GQ and after work and we set this magazine up. And uh, it became really popular. But the problem was it was a fan, sort of a fans and family-friendly magazine. And I had a lot of guys who were used to writing for magazines like Loaded. <laughs> so like when Billy Bremner died, for instance, I called Irving Welsh and I said, Irv, can you, can you write a tribute? He said, no problem. So the words come in, you don't fuck around with someone like Irving Welsh's copy. You just <laughs> it in. It was like, oh, you're a fucking genius. You're a fucking, fucking hell. He's fucking, you know, and he was just swearing like he, how he writes. And um, there were complaints about that. Not from the club. They thought it was great. There were young guys who bought the club. There were guys in their early 30s that put, they'd floated on the stock exchange. 
But then we start, and we just had total freedom, and, and it was it was absolutely brilliant. It was basically an official fanzine, really, but we had nice. great access. So we'd have people who were shooting pictures for GQ, shooting Alan Smith or David <laughs> Batty or, you know, Lucas Radobi, and um, it was really popular. It was a really good thing. But at one point, we had a column called I can't, I can't remember if it was called True or False, or whether we just did, you, you'll never believe it, or something like that. And me and this guy, Les Rowley, who was a comedy writer, we used to just sit and write, like make stuff up. So like, you know, the cheese is full of goalposts, or the centre circle's got an old well beneath it, and stuff that you can't maybe. Most football grounds have some strange legend about them. Yeah. And... Um, you know, but well, yeah, 24 strange legends every day. And like one of them was that I put in, I remember putting in that Ian Hart couldn't read. From <laughs> <laughs> the way he was looking at me after that came out in the players' lounge at Nottingham Forest away, he obviously could read. He <laughs> <laughs> was just scowling at us, you know. Ollie was the designer, and I we're going to Brighton on Saturday. We used, you know, we'd be going away to a lot of matches. And then another thing we did was. Do you remember David Miller used to present 606? Yeah, yeah. I think the BBC wanted to be in with the government a bit. He was yeah. Chelsea's Chelsea fan in literally the second or third issue. This I'm, I'm not listening to this at home. That's the thing with radio. You don't know what's coming. And he goes, oh, I've got a listener now. It's Maureen from Beeston in Leeds, and she's very upset about the new Leeds United magazine. I've got a copy of it here. And this lady's on the phone going, my son gets this, it's full of swearing, it's terrible. And David Miller starts reading these things out, like Tony Yaboa's arse had been used as a template for the Ghanaian skateboard park. And <laughs> it, was, it was nuts. It was just, I mean, literally, there were six or seven of us in his tiny office and, and just off Regent Street, just like banging it out. And when George Graham left, this guy called Mark Waits, who's got a massive ad agency now called Mother, they're like one of the biggest ad agencies in Britain. And Mark said, why don't we do a, a toilet sticker with George's face on it and then put underneath it, he shat on us, now you can shit on him forever. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll make it waterproof and we'll, you can stick it in your toilet. So we put that in the mag, <laughs> in the official club mag. <laughs> and I was away. Leeds were in the, the, the UEFA League, uh, UEFA Cup at the time. And um, Peter Risdale came up to me and he said, I, I can't be seen to approve of this public, but well done with that sticker. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it, it was a brilliant time to be close around the club. And it yeah. was obviously an even better time if you were a fan or a player because o O'Leary really got that mix of, of some really good buys. Yeah. You know, uh, Michael Bridges was a fantastic player. Olivier Dacour. You know, we had some good, yeah. really, really good. It was a great team. The Do you feel like O'Leary was kind of, it's kind of, he's been forgotten a bit because he went to Aston Villa, it didn't really work out. He did well, a really was, good job there, didn't he? It was brilliant. It was actually brilliant. George Graham was trying to buy Alan Thompson. He had Bruno Ribeiro as left midfielder. He was a pretty, not a bad sort of left-sided midfielder. Mm. And um, he wanted Thompson. And if he bought Thompson, Harry Kewell wouldn't have come through. He wouldn't have got anywhere near yeah. the first team. And Kewell had played. I'd seen him come on once as a kid with Howard Wilkinson at Ellen Road. 
And Wilco had dropped in a couple of those players. You know, I remember seeing Ian Hart very early on at, at, at Highbury and just thinking, God, this guy's not going to make it. He's going to get skinned, you know. Yeah. Humberg or somebody was just leaving him for dead. And um, But the, from the off, as soon as O'Leary got in, he put McPhail and Woodgate in. McPhail had a really good career, more in the championship yeah. with... with um, Barnsley and Cardiff, but he was a really good player. He was really skillful. He reminded me of Liam Brady, the way yeah. he used to play. But of course, the more famous ones like Smithy, he was just from the off. I know that O'Leary told me that um, Tony Adams had called him and said, you better tell that kid to calm down. Someone's going to hurt him. Because you probably won't, I mean, maybe you will remember this, but it was like he was an assassin. He just literally, every game, for Alan Smith's first 10 games or so, he'd just take someone out. Peter Schroeder, <laughs> Tony Adams, I mean, like legends of the game. <laughs> this kid, and he didn't drink Alan Smith. I did. A, I hosted a fashion show that he modelled in once. <laughs> we, we were both sitting sober. Everyone else was having champagne. We were chatting, and he was a really nice, quiet guy, and it was really, really bad the way he's, he himself has perceived, because he didn't have any choice in that, that sale. He was told if you don't go to Man United, Leeds is going to go bust, you know. And he, it was, and then he was advised not to come to Lucas Davies' testimonial and play in it by the police. Bloody hell! And people, having been around the club when you know before yeah. that, still having contacts there, you sometimes you wish the fans could get the full stories because he was yeah. a great player for us and a really good guy, you know. James, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. We didn't really get onto the leads as much as we, because we just, I mean, so much loaded chat. Um, the book Animal House is, well, it'll be out now by the time this goes out. It's so good. Thanks so much for your time, James. It's been it's absolutely been great. Pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. We always ask, end, James, one final question, which is that if I gave you the option to go back in time to the 1st of January, 1990, and relive the decade again, would you take that option? <sighs> Jesus, again. <laughs> you, had quite a busy, you had quite a busy one. It did sound quite hard. I barely got out of that decade alive. You, know? <laughs> you don't want to roll the dice. I've got to tell you time. something. For all the great stories in, in the book, I don't hanker after it. <laughs> I mean, I look actually, you know, I was fucking knackered by the end of that decade. <laughs> Put it while you're ahead. So actually, probably no. No. Wow. Most people say so, no. yes, but I can't. Yeah. Uh, you know, the idea of that even happening just makes me think. I don't think I would. I was really lucky to stop drinking. I'd, it's you and Gary. You joined Gary, Gary Neville. You joined Gary, Gary Neville in house. No. No. Yeah, yeah. You know what, as well, I think just, you know, as somebody who's 20 years older than you two, when you have a brilliant time, so long as you take the best things from it and move forward, you don't, if you're sitting there thinking, oh, I wish I could do that again, kind of, it's not the really the right way to move forward. No. You're stuck in the past if you do that. And I had like a nice life then. And it's quite, yeah. um, it's quite weird for me to be revisiting all of this stuff. <laughs> I'm enjoying it. So yeah. I really enjoyed talking about the football. Oh, thanks, man. Cheers, James. It's been okay, absolutely cheers, James. See you later. Bye-bye. Cheers. Thanks, mate. There we go. And James Brown's book, Animal House, is available to buy now. I would say it has got more killer anecdotes in it than any book I've read since um, Steve Bruce's Striker. I'd say that. 
Now, shall we end with a quiz, guys? Let's do it. Yeah, why not? Uh, in honour of Leeds United, you will remember in 1993, Leeds United played Rangers in what was dubbed the Battle of Britain as they met in the European Cup. I would like a game of starting 11 played with the first leg of that match. Rangers won 2-1. You play starting 11, you can have one wrong. The second one you get wrong, you are out. Would you like to begin the game, Michael? I will go for my favourite player of all time, Eric Cantona. Correct. Oh, yeah, good one. <clears throat> I'm going to go John Lukic. Correct. Uh, Gary McAllister. Correct. Andy Gorham. Correct. Gary Speed. Correct. Ali McCoist. Correct. Tony Dorigo. Correct. Ah. Oh. I'm getting now. Now I'm getting desperate. Yeah, I've, I've got nothing from Rangers now. Uh, you, you, you took my two. Um, I've got two answers, and one is a gamble. Okay, uh, they're both gambles, really. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go with Mark Hately. Correct. Oh, Mark Hately's got an. Mark Hately's got a very interesting career. I was reading about him the other day. Uh, he's researching some interview we're doing or something. Not with Mark Hately, and I did think. I didn't really know much about Mark Haley because he was just a bloke who played for Rangers. But if anyone knows Mark Haley, I'd love to interview him. Yeah. <laughs> he, was he in Milan? I played for Milan, he played for England in World Cups. He then played for Monaco, played for Rangers. Then he did, did managed he, did Hull. Did he invent the Predator? Did, have I no, he that? didn't did... invent the Predator. Craig Johnson invented the Predator. Oh, that's who I'm thinking of, yeah. yeah. If yeah. you know Craig Johnson, please get in touch. Well, oh, I'd love to interview him about the Predator. <laughs> Let's not let that distract. Question from the fact one: that Is Jones. it all a load of nonsense? Yeah. Well, do you know um, what we should do? Someone sent it to us. The next time we do a watch along, either for fan club or normal, someone sent us the documentary that about Craig Johnson inventing the Predator, which I cannot wait to watch. I just remember. I remember watching it at the time. It just involved him sticking a bit of ping pong bat onto his boot. Anyway, Michael, carry on. <laughs> yes, I remember that. I do remember that. I'm very grateful for the extra thinking time. Um, oh, God. Lee Chapman. Correct. I'm going to have to use my other gamble, which was your friend and mine, Trevor Steve. Correct. Oh, it's always a shame if one of the people we've interviewed doesn't get chosen on. <laughs> I'm now I'm now out, I think. I think. There's a there's a there's a, two Leeds midfielders that are eminently yeah. gettable. Yeah, okay. Okay, that's the Leeds defence is I'm not gonna I'm gonna say it, not title winning man for man. And there's some famous ish Scottish players that you could possibly get, but it's a stretch. Whose go is it? Um my god, I don't think I've got anyone from Rangers. I can just guess at a Scottish name and as long as you don't press me on the first name. <laughs> okay. Uh no, I've got I've got a Leeds gamble. Rowcastle. Incorrect. Oh. Oh. Do I have to Carl? get this right? Who, who are you going for, Skull, to win it? Danny Wallace? Incorrect. <laughs> oh. I mean, I suppose we're now in a world where people just throw out names. The first one to get one right is the winner. Well, the other Ferguson. one I think of is... Ferguson. Ferguson. <laughs> David Batty. Is that too early for Batty? Well, okay. So they're your two guesses. Yeah. David Batty is correct. <gasps> Incredibly... Rangers have a player called Ferguson. 
No one expected it. So, Michael, to continue the game, I'm going to need the first name of Ferguson. Oh, come on. Uh, 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 go with Tosh. Come on, be brave. <laughs> uh, David. David Ferguson. Oh, it was Ian Ferguson. Oh, oh, so Andy Gorham. Yeah. John Brown, Richard Goff, that was gettable. Dave McPherson, yeah. David Robertson, Ian Ferguson, Stuart McCall, Trevor uh, Stephen, oh. Ian Durant, Mark Haley, Ali McCoist. Uh, Leeds, John Lukic, you got that. Chris Fairclough and Chris White at centre back. Tony Dorigo, no you got. John Newsom, wouldn't have got that, would you? No. no. David Batty, Gary McAllister, this is one you could have got. Gordon Strachan. Ah. Gary Speed, Eric Cantona, Lee Chapman. How would you like to end the show, Chris? That was good. Well, seeing as we had James Brown on, it's got to be uh, loaded by Primal Screen, right? Perfect. We will see you next week, or as Chris would say, Stuart Slater, see you later. Just what is it that you want to do? We want to get loaded, and we want to have a good time. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. You know, all I want is a great bed, a fantastic shower, and breakfast that doesn't end at 8 a.m. I'm on holiday, I'm still sleeping. I also like ease, and the Hotels.com app easily helps me to find a perfect hotel for every trip. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side-by-side. Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, you don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today.